Chapter Twelve of the Autobiography of George Dewey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: Building the New Navy. In the long period of inertia for our navy after the Civil War, while the country took no interest in its defenses and our ships did little cruising, officers saw relatively a great deal of shore duty. Nearly every officer of this time was, sooner or later, connected in one capacity or another with the lighthouse service. After two years as lighthouse inspector for the second district with headquarters at Boston, in April 1878, I was made naval secretary of the lighthouse board. This was my first tour of duty with residence in Washington. Major Peter C. Haynes of the Engineer Corps was the army secretary, while the other members were two army and two naval officers and three civilians, including Professor Henry, secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, a scientist of great repute in his day, to whom many gave the priority of credit for the invention of the magnetic telegraph. Among the questions that came up for settlement was the substitution of mineral for lard oil in the lamps. Professor Henry favored lard oil, which cost about 75 cents a gallon, while mineral oil cost 8 cents. Major Haynes and myself were for the innovation, which was accepted after we had convinced the professor by practical demonstration that mineral oil was the cheaper and really the better illuminant. We saw electric lights used in the large seacoast lighthouses for the first time, the introduction of gas-lighted buoys, which were already in use in Europe, and we changed the system of paying the employees, which had been a source of dissatisfaction from that of orders on the collectors of customs to the simple one of direct payment by the inspectors. This position of naval secretary I held for the usual term of four years, beginning in the administration of President Hayes, and extending through the brief administration of President Garfield, and to the first year of President Arthur's. I found myself in Washington social life, with its round of dinners and receptions, which were a new and enjoyable experience to me, if exhausting physically. Among statesmen, Blaine and Conkling were at the height of their careers. Grant's candidacy for a third term developed and failed, and Admiral Porter and General Sherman, whom I frequently met, were still living. With the passage of time, I had lost none of a Vermonter's fondness for good horseflesh, and riding was my favorite exercise. On my afternoon constitutionals, I often came up with a fine-looking, white-bearded old gentleman who always wore a German cap. Sometimes, as I overtook him, I would draw rein, and we would pass the time of day. Then, as I liked to go faster than he did, I would draw ahead of him, always receiving the politest bow in exchange for my own. He struck me as a most delightful person, and I conceived a real liking for him. One day I asked the watchman at the gate of the soldier's home who this old gentleman was. He answered, His name is Bancroft, and he is from Berlin. From this I knew that he was the historian and former secretary of the Navy, and that he must have developed a fondness for German caps when he was our minister to Germany. The next time that I met him when I was riding, I introduced myself and said, 
as an officer of the navy who owes so much to the naval academy that you established i want to thank you i could see that he liked the compliment with its reference to a service which many of that generation had forgotten and so we became friends i enjoyed many anecdotes from him while i slowed the pace of my horse to that of his in our afternoon rides i was at a dinner later when both he and general sherman were present menus were passed around with a request for autographs general sherman wrote his and underneath a word which mr bancroft could not make out what is it mr bancroft asked general answered sherman mr bancroft who had already written his autograph asked for the menu back and under his name he added octogenarian he lived to be very old and in his latter days his mind was feeble he had to give up riding and was a familiar figure in the streets of washington leaning on the arm of his german manservant one day when i was walking with admiral porter and we passed bancroft i heard the valet say to him lift your hat that is admiral porter for it was a custom in washington to lift the hat to the admiral mr bancroft obeyed the valet's military direction and porter said to me here he is told to lift his hat to me when i used to salute him as a superior porter had lifted his own hat in a manner that showed that the feeling of a junior officer in the presence of a former secretary of the navy had not passed in october eighteen eighty two i was ordered to the command of the juniata which was to proceed to the china station by way of the mediterranean the assignment being most welcome on account of my health the juniata was a second-rate sloop built in eighteen sixty one when i had gone to europe with the wabash on my midshipman cruise it had been in one of the finest frigates of my time at the same station in eighteen sixty six i joined a sister ship of the wabash the colorado with the prestige that our navy had won in the civil war now i was going in a relic of a past epoch of naval warfare which you would have expected to see flying the flag of some tenth-rate power she was as out of date as the stagecoach her round bottom made her roll heavily with even a light swell and an english sea captain at fayal declared that he had seen her keel out of the water naval science had gone ahead rapidly and we had stood still while europe was building armored battleships and fast cruisers we were making no additions to our navy we had no sea-going commerce to protect with the coming of steel hulls and steam this had all passed to england and france and that rising sea power the german empire therefore no one had any direct interest in the navy our antiquated men-of-war had become the laughing-stock of the nations their only possible utility was as something that would float for officers and men to cruise in in time of peace and be murdered in by a few broadsides in time of war we had appropriations only for running expenses and repairs none for building new ships italy spain and holland were each stronger on the sea than the united states a sea voyage did not bring me the improvement in health for which i had hoped rather the contrary when our antique juniata entered the harbor of gibraltar 
I was too ill to be on the bridge. Mr. Sprague, our consul, brought off a British physician for consultation with our ship's surgeon, and they made a thorough examination of me. A number of times he pressed his hand very forcibly against my liver, asking, Does that hurt you? And each time, though I had an excruciating twinge, I managed to keep a straight face and reply, No. It was a foolish self-deceit on my part, but I was not minded to have any medical decision put me ashore and keep me from going to the Far East, where I had not as yet served. I thought I could wear down my indisposition, as many another man has thought under similar circumstances. When we arrived at Malta, however, I was taken ashore to the British Naval Hospital with a complication of typhoid fever and abscess of the liver. I owe my life to the skill and care of the head surgeon, Dr. James Nicholas Dick, a genial, warm-hearted, capable Irishman. For some time I had a tube in my side, and every day, rather than trust any junior surgeon or nurse, he himself attended to the abscess. He is still living, and is now Inspector General Sir James Nicholas Dick, of the Directors General of the Medical Department, retired and honorary surgeon to the King. After I was out of the hospital, and the Huniata had proceeded on her way under a new commander, I was given sick leave. Traveling from one resort to another in search of health, finally in February 1884, I brought up at Santa Barbara, California, which will ever have the most grateful associations in my memory, for there I fully recovered, and to my delight might again apply for assignment to duty. And now, at the age of forty-seven, I received my promotion from commander to captain, a grade which, thanks to the slowness of advancement, I was to hold for twelve years, or until a year before I went out to the command of the Asiatic Squadron when I was made a Commodore. I was given command of the Dolphin, which was not yet in commission. Later, owing to the disputes which arose over this, the first of our new ships, and the delay in getting her to sea, I was offered the command of the Pensacola, which I gladly accepted. Of her, I could say what the officer who had charge of towing the dry dock to the Philippines said, when he was in my office in the general board after his return and was looking at a picture of the Dewey riding a heavy sea. I think I should know her if I ever saw her again. The Pensacola had been the companion of the Mississippi in the laborious business of getting her over the bar for the Battle of New Orleans, and she had been anchored in the river off New Orleans ahead of us during our long stay there in 62. At the close of the war she was already obsolete as a fighting naval unit in comparison with the new Ironsides or the Monitors. Twenty years later, when the armored ships built in Europe five years previously were already out of date, and those built ten years previously were being put in reserve, she went abroad, bearing the flag of Rear Admiral Franklin. She was interesting because of her antiquity, but for the sake of picturesqueness as a survival, which was her only claim to fame, it would have been better if she'd been a relic of the War of 1812, which, for practical purposes, she might just as well have been. 
but there were statesmen who averred that if the pensacola had fought well in the civil war she would also fight well enough in the eighties the best face we could present to foreign officers was to say that we were starting a new navy while we kept the pensacola and vessels of her class shipshape and tried to learn modern gunnery by target practice with her obsolete guns there was not a fourth-rate british cruiser of modern build that could not easily have kept out of range of her battery torn her to pieces and set her on fire when i was on the colorado as executive officer in sixty five i was very young for my position now i was old for a captain who had just been promoted from commander and at an age when many english officers received the grade of rear admiral which i was not to have until i was sixty one in those days naval officers had reason for regretting their choice of a profession in which they had to see the officers of other nations enjoying the use of material for keeping up with professional progress which they themselves wholly lacked we knew that any one of the powers might require us to submit to humiliating exactions because we were incapable of defence by sea the more earnest the effort of an officer to keep up with progress despite his handicaps the more sensitive he was to them it was easy then for an officer to drift along in his grade losing interest and remaining in the navy only because he was too old to change his occupation yet the spirit of the revolution of eighteen twelve and of farragut and annapolis did not die it remained to develop the efficiency of the new navy which was to have its trial in the spanish war we had a fine-spirited crew on board the pensacola and i often wondered how they were able to keep up their interest in such an old tub when i visited the mediterranean again it was on the olympia homeward bound from the orient and it was a source of much satisfaction to be returning from a victory won with ships of our new navy in view of the wounds to my sense of professional pride as captain of the pensacola fourteen years previously as we had no commerce or interests to protect in europe and were unable to protect them if we had the presence of our squadron in european waters was perfunctory it used to be a saying among the officers that we went from port to port to meet our wives who were traveling ashore and to get letters from sweethearts one could easily have reasoned that the navy department knowing that we could be of no service as an instrument of warfare meant us to enjoy a pleasantly conducted european holiday in the summer of eighteen eighty five we avoided the heat of the mediterranean by going to northern waters where our ports of call included stockholm and copenhagen at stockholm king oscar of sweden came on board he had been a naval officer when called to the throne and had the true sailor's fondness for the service while taking a glass of wine and a piece of hardtack in the cabin and looking out on the gun deck he remarked to those about him this is the kind of kingdom for a man to have i would rather uh, command a man of war than be king of any country in the world and turning to commander bridgeman of the kearsarge he said would not you captain bridgeman answered with a smile 
I have only tried the man of war, your majesty. With the coming of winter we were back south, touching at whatever Mediterranean ports pleased the squadron commander, from Tangier to Alexandria and Villefranche to the Piraeus. At the Piraeus we were visited by King George of Greece. The evening before the Pensacola left the Piraeus I dined with the royal family, the only guest, and on leaving after dinner the king accompanied me to the outer door and said, The next time you come I hope you will be admiral. It was a source of much regret that I could not go to Greece with the Olympia on my way from Manila when I was an admiral. But it meant two weeks' quarantine, and I was therefore obliged to forego the pleasure. We spent all the summer of 87 in the Mediterranean, and in August Rear Admiral Franklin reached the retiring age. His flag was hauled down, and that of Rear Admiral James A. Greer was hoisted in its place. At Malta, we saluted a flag comparatively a newcomer to the Mediterranean, and indeed to the Atlantic, the Japanese, flying from the Japanese cruiser Naniwa, under command of Captain Ito, who was later the victorious commander-in-chief in the naval battle of the Yalu in the Chino-Japanese War. It was the Naniwa under Captain Togo, later the victor of Tushima Straits, which, by sinking the transport Kaohsiung at the outset of the Chino-Japanese War, precipitated an international incident. During this European cruise I had the opportunity of studying the character of other navies and of judging of their relative efficiency, whether British, French, Spanish, or Italian. Though service in European waters is delightful, I had developed the strong conviction that the maintenance of a European squadron by the United States was poor naval policy. About the year 1890, when I was chief of the Bureau of Equipment of the Navy Department, I was lunching one day with Secretary of the Navy Tracy. In the course of our conversation he said, Dewey, if you were Secretary of the Navy, what would you do with our ships in time of peace? Having already given this matter considerable thought, I replied, I would bring all the ships home from the European Station, the South Atlantic Station, and the South Pacific Station, then divide them into two parts. One part I would keep on the North Atlantic Station, and the other in the Pacific. Of those in the Pacific, I would keep the larger part on the Pacific Coast, and the remainder in Asiatic waters. The Secretary said, Why? Well, I replied, to begin with, we have no defense for our coasts except the Navy. Uh, the coasts were not defended then by the Army as they are now. And in the second place, our officers and men would have an opportunity to become acquainted with their own coasts, which they are not able to do now. And above all, we would be spending the country's money at home, and giving our people a chance to see something of the Navy, which they can't do when it is scattered all over the world. We don't need to keep ships constantly on foreign stations. We have no interests there for them to protect, and there is really nothing for them to do. But if anything occurs which makes it necessary for ships to visit foreign countries, let us send a squadron of four ships instead of one, for whatever is to be done can be accomplished by four better than by one. This was a view that might not be welcome to officers or to their wives who liked to see Europe, 
or to admirals who enjoyed the official honors that await a squadron upon entering a foreign harbor. But it was certainly in the interests of efficiency. If there must be junketing, let it be where our own people who pay for the navy rather than foreigners might see the ships. Much junketing of any kind is a distraction that interferes with application and routine and therefore with efficiency. One reason, perhaps, why so little was seen of our ships in home ports for twenty years after the Civil War was that the sight of them might arouse the people's demand for a naval policy which did not represent a mere waste of money in keeping the relics in commission. The people might have insisted on better ships, and Congress had other uses for its funds in the midst of increasing pension expenditures than spending it on such a luxury as building men-o'-war, which brought no return in patronage. I often wondered, during the seventies and eighties, on whose shoulders outraged public opinion would have placed the responsibility if there had been war and consequent national disaster. There was only one alternative for the naval captain of a wooden ship in an engagement with an armored clad, and that was to go down with his ship. Then, at least, no one could say that he had not done all that could be expected of him. Secretary Tracy did not act on my advice, for it was a little ahead of his time. But when I returned from Manila, I had the pleasure of again expressing my views about the value of concentration, which was soon thereafter put into practice, not only at home, but by foreign governments as well. If we send battleships to Europe today, it is only for a brief visit of courtesy. Naval experts have ceased to think in terms of single ships. They think in squadrons and fleets. The return trip across the Atlantic with the Pensacola was my last experience on board a ship that carried sail, and my last sea service until I was to hoist my Commodore's broad pennant. The next eight years were spent in work which, to my mind, was the best sort of preparation for the duty that was to devolve upon me with the outbreak of the Spanish War. Having witnessed one abrupt transition in the Navy in the Civil War, I was to witness another, this time to armored steel vessels with powerful engines and guns in turrets. We had allowed Europe to have fifteen years the start of us, and at last were trying to catch up with her while our officers had been only observers from the outside rather than participants in the evolution. Those of us who had not lost heart and who had kept in touch with progress by study and observation took up our tasks with avidity, while those who had been discouraged and content to drift, thinking that we should never have anything better than the Pensacolas and Huniatas, found themselves timid about responsibilities requiring technical knowledge in place of old-fashioned gunnery and seamanship. I now had sufficient rank to become a bureau chief and was made chief of the Bureau of Equipment on July 20th, 1889, succeeding my lifelong friend and later Rear Admiral W.S. Schley, at a time when we were busy with the equipment of the ships of our new navy which was now entering upon a forward stage with our first battleships being planned. There was nothing showy about the four years' service that followed. The detail was not exacting, but vitally engrossing and important. In common with every other ambitious officer of the Navy, I was feeling the pulse of the new spirit and problems. 
if professionally we had to smile a little when our public exulted over the sending of the white squadron abroad in order to show our new navy to europe we knew that this squadron was only a pioneer of something better to come for these small unarmored cruisers were not built to fight with armored ships however we needed cruisers in order to have a fleet and these were an excellent beginning considering how little we had to work with at first either in appropriations or in shipyards neither the pride of the public nor of our officers would have listened to the suggestion of going to the great shipyards of europe for our pioneer men-of-war we must build them and arm them ourselves it was better to make a modest start in a thorough manner than a too ambitious start with bad results after the squadron of cruisers a squadron of armored fighting ships was bound to come when my four years were up as chief of the bureau of equipment i served for a year as a member of the lighthouse board and in october eighteen ninety five was made president of the board of inspections and survey this was a very important duty all the new vessels which were then nearing completion were subject to the board's inspection and approval ours was the responsibility that the construction from stem to stern was sound and that the builders kept the letter of the specifications by this time the country had become interested in its navy any failure of our new battleships to come up to the mark was bound to excite public suspicion if not to develop a scandal with the board rested the final word of acceptance of any ship after she was finished thus it was that i presided at the trials of the texas maine iowa indiana and massachusetts all the battleships except the oregon which were to demolish the spanish squadron at santiago and also the armored cruiser brooklyn and among the unarmored cruisers the nashville wilmington and helena and a number of torpedo boats i knew the ships how they were built and what was to be expected of them and i felt that if i had not kept up with the progress of my profession it was not for want of application or opportunity on may twenty third eighteen ninety six i had received my promotion from captain to commodore but i remained for another year as president of the board of inspection and survey while my rank entitled me to the command of a squadron as soon as there was a vacancy. End of chapter 12